Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. Having been raised in Georgia by parents who came of age during the 1970s, I grew up frequently hearing the music that is most often categorized as Southern rock. It was always just kind of around, especially once my stepfather entered the picture shortly after I turned six. Unlike my mom and dad, who were from East Point and LaGrange, respectively, David was a native of Noonan, and he just seemed to know everyone in our town. He had casually known Noonanites Alan Jackson and Doug Stone before they had become country music stars, and was good friends with a southern rock band in town named Yo Mama, occasionally running the door at their shows. Besides being the band at Mom and David's wedding, they would often play at the handful of local spots around Noonan. In particular, a bar right down the road from my dad's house called Spanky's, which had the tail end of an airplane sticking out above its entrance, which always held a real fascination for me as a kid. I never caught any shows at that particular venue, but I do remember attending my fair share of Yo Mama gigs. Beards, wood paneling, and cowboy hats with feather hat bands were very much a presence in my life growing up. But I gotta say that for the most part, I was pretty indifferent towards it all. I imagine that some of that had to do with just being a bratty kid and associating that whole scene with my stepdad. As a child of divorce, with all the confusions that often accompany circumstances of this sort, I could sometimes be pretty terrible towards David. Now this is not to say that my dad didn't love Southern Rock, because he very much did, but I didn't necessarily connect him to it in the same way that I did my stepdad. I remember my dad always having such eclectic taste growing up, liking everything from Frank Zappa to Buckwheat Zydeco. And even though I'd spent my fair share of time staring at his copy of Wet Willie's Drippin' Wet, it would be years before I'd be compelled to actually listen to it. By the time I started buying music and having strong opinions about it, I think a part of me wanted sole ownership over it. And maybe I purposely avoided, for a while at least, anything that was somewhat connected to my parents. None of them were huge Dylan fans, nor did they have a clue what indie rock even meant, so I focused on those areas and ignored anything that I felt didn't match the criteria. But over time, something happened. I got a little older a bit wiser and more open-minded, got really into Jimmy Carter, and I met the woman who would become my wife. She had grown up in Macon, Georgia, and basically, because I was in love, I one day went to Wuxtree Records in Decatur and bought a copy of Brothers and Sisters. Fast forward some years later, and I had begun doing a radio show with my buddy Andy for our local station in Noonan. As I've mentioned on previous episodes, the show was called the Sound and Fury Radio Hour, and it showcased artists from the South. Andy, whose dad had booked shows at Georgia Southern University in the early 70s, had a breadth of knowledge about Southern rock, especially for the deep cuts. And it was through Andy that I was first introduced to the music of Cowboy, and specifically their 1971 record, Five will get you ten. The first track I heard was the infectious Hey There Baby, 
and then later, please be with me. I liked what I was hearing, so I filed it away in my mind as something I should explore further. Unfortunately, as often is the case with a busy life, some time would pass, and I'd forget all about it. But one day, I happened to be looking through my mother's matchbook collection that she had first started when she was a student at LaGrange College. I came upon a matchbook for a club in LaGrange called the Rock Garden, so I texted a picture of it to my dad to see if he had any memories of that place. He texted back to say yes, and that the best show he ever saw there was for Cowboy, and that he really loved that band. And with that, I decided to dive in. I put on Cowboy's Five Will Get You Ten, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Hello, Tommy Talton here. I am uh, a guitar player, singer, songwriter, all that stuff. Have been uh, for the last 55 years or something like that. I don't know. I haven't counted lately. Sitting at the top of a Holiday Inn in Houston. I believe I can see the end of Texas, not to mention the entire world. Lone Star, Yellow Rose, Silver Spurs and Rodeos. How do the horses feel today? Who knows? I don't even care if you don't. to fall they say this world is small if you get up and look around uh-huh. on file get you 10 and in cowboy i was uh, one of the songwriters singers and lead guitar player along with peter kowalki produced by johnny sandlin We did most of it in Muscle Shoals, at Muscle Shoals Sound on Jackson Highway because Capricorn Records in Macon was uh, being refurbished and uh, redesigned. So we went over to Muscle Shoals Sound, which was a cool thing on its own anyway. We were all friends with David Hood and Roger Hawkins and Jimmy Johnson and Barry Beckett, the Swampers back then. And a lot of good stuff had been cut there before that, even back then in 1971. Tommy Talton would experience a somewhat idyllic childhood while growing up in the Orlando suburb of Winter Park in a pre-Disney World, Florida. It was a winter park for Canadians and people from up north. It was a a beautiful place to come to. yeah, the population of Orlando at that time and the surrounding area was something like uh, 55,000. Of course, now it's up a million or something in the surrounding areas and everything. But anyway, um, yeah, it was a beautiful place to grow up. I was uh, quite fortunate to have a, uh, a great mother to help raise me. I lost my father in a car accident 
when I was five years old, so I never really knew him too much. I grew up in Winter Park and uh, on Chestnut Avenue and uh, Red Brick Streets and real quiet. I think in the in Orange County, which is Orlando and Winter Park and and surrounding cities, Orange County had uh, ten thousand lakes. I could walk out of my front door and uh, during the summer and walk in any direction and come to a lake within a quarter of a mile or even closer. I remember walking to elementary school. Uh, it was only about three quarters of a mile away. And uh, I remember walking down Chestnut Avenue, the street I lived on, and half of the road was unpaved at that time, turned into a dirt road from the red brick on my way to school. And I remember looking up and seeing these great trees, these old Florida, I forget what they were actually. Um, there was this one huge dead tree that looked like something out of a horror film, uh, almost looked like it had a life of its own, but sitting way up on top of it with, you know, there, it was a dead, a dead trunk of a tree that was probably 80 feet tall. But at the very top of it was this, uh, wildcat sitting up there uh, a florida wildcat i remember seeing it quite often it was it greeted me as i walked to school every day and uh, not every day but fairly often it was surprising um but uh yeah back then it was uh, there was lots of uh, all these lakes i talked about um lake maitland lake virginia um and Lake Osceola, all these lakes were connected by these beautiful canals, almost like uh, an Italian Venice type deal. And uh, we would play in those canals and uh, swim in them all day long. And, uh, you know, I grew up in boats and skiing and uh, playing baseball. And that was pretty much my childhood. It was very Norman Rockwell, you know. Um, and I loved baseball so much that up until I found music, there was no doubt in my mind I was going to be a baseball player for sure. Uh, and then I found a guitar, and uh, after that I didn't have a choice. It is through his family that at an early age, Talton would first gain an interest in music, which would eventually lead to him learning to play the guitar. At eight years old, I, uh, I had an uncle my Italian uncle, my mother was Italian and uh, had bunches of brothers and sisters. So I had a million uncles and aunts. But uh, my favorite uncle, Frankie, uh, I would uh, go over to his house right around the corner. And uh, he always had a bunch of, uh, he collected jukeboxes and old guitars and radios. And he had a, uh, it, that was the only, that was the first place I ever saw a um, a sound recorder and it was a it wasn't tape it was a, a wire recorder it looked like a thin piece of it was metal but it looked like a thin piece of uh, fishing wire uh couldn't have couldn't have been much fidelity on it for music but, um but anyway my uncle frankie i, I remember being in his house uh, one of the millions of times and uh, i remember walking across the room and seeing a guitar case and leaning down getting on my knees and unlocking it and opening it up and just almost took my breath away this beautiful uh, silver metal 
guitar there, which I know now, I didn't know then, but I know now was a national steel dobro. And I could even see my reflection in the in the body of it. It was all clean and shiny. And I remember plucking the high E string on it and just getting lost and looking at it vibrate and hearing the sound. And I think uh, from that moment on, I was, I don't know if the word is doomed or blessed, but uh, from then on, I couldn't stop thinking about music and uh, guitars. And my mother, she loved to dance and she loved uh, music and uh, was not a musician. And in fact, no, nobody in our family. My uncle Frankie played. Uh, believe it or not, he, he liked to play ribs. You know how you play uh, spoons uh, rhythmically, like you know you hold them in one hand and uh, shake them back and forth, and they click like a uh, castanets. That's what they're they're. It's the same same deal. But these uh, rib bones that he had uh, were all shiny like they were they were almost like they were painted with varnish they were so shiny but actually it was all it was all only because of the sweat that he'd that it's uh gotten on them through the years of him playing them you know it kind of like cleaned the bones and made them shine i i would say i was about 13 when i actually got a guitar and and started getting serious about it. And my mother uh, found a guy down the street that uh, happened to be given guitar lessons. And I went to, uh, I went to two lessons. And uh, when she came to pick me up after the second lesson, I said, mom, you don't need to pay that guy anymore. He can't teach me what I want to know. And uh, from then on, I um, learned off of records, just listened and and uh, did it all by ear. By his early teens, Talton would begin playing in bands that would perform throughout the Orlando area. Eventually, he would join the band We the People, who by the mid-60s would gain a strong following in Florida and release some singles through Challenge Records and RCA Victor. My friend Walter Niels and I started this band, and we were called the Chessmen, and later called the Keys, K-E-Y-E-S. We thought we were so clever adding that little E in there. Uh, of course, we learned a lot of uh, Beatles songs, like everybody did back then. I was in a band called the Offbeats, uh, which was managed by a guy named Ron Dillman, and uh, they were the most happening band in Orlando when I joined them. It was, uh, I hated leaving my friends behind in the Chessmen, my friend Walter, but uh, I couldn't pass up taking a job with the Offbeats. Their lead guitar player went into the Navy and I uh, was asked to take his place. So it was a step up. It was first chair. It was a first chair guitar player deal, so I took it. And then later on, our our manager, Dillman, uh, also managed a band called The Trademarks from Leesburg, Florida. And at one point, he had an idea that the mixing, uh, mixing the two bands together would be a good idea. And uh, 
he it was he had a good idea we uh, the guitar player uh, Wayne Proctor from the trademarks and the organ player Randy Boyk the two of them came from the trademarks and Tom Wynn on drums who I would later ask uh, to form Cowboy with me and Scott Boyer um Tom was in the offbeats with me and a fellow named David Duff and the three of us joined uh, Randy and Wayne from Leesburg and we became We The People and started recording for uh, Challenge Records back then. Uh, I think they were based in California. What a pretty face, what a pretty smile, but you can't hide nothing good. Wayne and I wrote almost everything. David Duff uh, was a great songwriter too, but didn't write quite as much as us. He had a couple songs uh, that we recorded with We The People, but mostly uh, out of the, um, I think we recorded something like 40, 42 songs and uh, through the years, through the couple years that we existed. Uh, I think 1966, and, and half of 67, I was involved in it, and then I moved on. But um, out of the, you know, out of the 40, 42 songs, it was pretty evenly split between me and Wayne. It is through the local scene that Talton would meet Jacksonville musician Scott Boyer. Impressed by one another's songwriting skills, the two would form the band Cowboy in 1969. Back then, you know, uh, in 65, 66, 67, there wasn't a whole lot of bands, you know. Um, and there were even less bands that were actually working. You know, there were the Almond Joys and there was Scott Boyer and Butch Drucks and David Brown, who were a trio called The Bitter End, I-N-D. Uh, I don't know why. I never asked them why they did that, but. It was the thing to do. It's like, <laughs> make your band name cool. Change a letter. But, you know, we would all, whenever we shared a gig, uh, like at the Tiger's Den in Cocoa Beach or uh, the Kiki Hut in Orlando, uh, I forget the names of all, a bunch of them. There was a place in Lakeland, too, that was fun to play, that was popular. A lot of youth centers, you know, and Battle of the Bands, all that junk. Um, that was the only place we could see each other and hear each other because, uh, you know, we were always working. I remember um, I saw Scott from a distance. We shared some gigs. And I, I really loved uh, what him and Butch and David were doing as the bitter end. They were playing songs that not a lot of bands played. Their playlist was very different from most. And they played a lot of uh, obscure songs off uh, albums from The Love and Spoonful or The Birds, you know. It was interesting. I and the and David Duff was very good at singing um, James Brown and, uh, and uh, The Righteous Brothers and The Rascals and... Uh, 
and so we were doing lots more R&B oriented stuff, um, which I'm thankful for to this day. Um, so Scott and I, you know, were aware of each other, but then we had a mutual friend who, um, I know she came to me and she said, uh, see, at the time I was playing also after I'd gotten out of We The People, I'd come back from California and I was playing a bunch of, uh, I was doing acoustic gigs alone and playing coffee houses and uh, doing that whole folk singer thing. But I was, uh, again, I had my own songs. I'd do some, some Dylan, you know, and some, uh, uh, some Dave Von Ronk and uh, maybe some Fred Neal, who was another great writer. Our friend, you know, she came to me and said, you know, there's a there's this guy from Jacksonville, Scott Boyer, who. Um, he writes songs, too, and you guys need to meet, he said, she said. Uh, he writes as good a song as you do, and I said, well, great, I need to meet this guy. <laughs> and. Uh, we were introduced and uh, we had our guitars with us and, you know. And because we knew we were going to want to play. So we sat down in the kitchen there and um, he sang a song for me and I sang a song for him. And it did happen that quick. Uh, I think he sang me um, his song Living in the Country, which was on our first album, Reach for the Sky. And I believe I sang for him a song I'd written called Pretty Friend, which was also on uh Reach for the Sky, our first album. So we played those two songs and looked at each other and said, all right, who else is going to be in the band? And literally six months later, we had what became Cowboy was all living together in the same house in Jacksonville, Florida. And we played music any chance we had, and we had I mean, we made it so that that's all we that's all we had to do. We had a, we we had a newspaper route that uh, we paid the minimal. Uh, I forget what the rent was at this joint. It was uh, probably 80 bucks a month or something. I don't know. We were uh, constantly writing songs and playing, uh, working up arrangements on the songs that we had. And it, it was just all about music. During the same year in which Cowboy forms, former manager of Otis Redding, Phil Walden, and Atlantic Records executive Frank Fenter would form the independent label Capricorn Records. Based in Macon, Georgia, the label would play a pivotal role in the development of the genre and scene commonly referred to as Southern Rock, releasing albums by such notable acts as the Marshall Tucker Band, Wet Willie, and the Allman Brothers Band. And it is through the Allman Brothers, having known Boyer and Talton from their days in the local Florida music scene, as well as drummer Butch Trucks having previously played with Boyer in The Bitter End, that Cowboy would be brought to the attention of Phil Walden. Well, that was uh, pretty much all because of Dwayne Allman, really. When we were living down in that house, Dwayne had stopped by because we all knew each other and because of that circuit in florida of the you know all the bands playing and sharing gigs i i played gigs with uh, 
I, th- I think it was the offbeats. I don't think it was We the People. The offbeats, when I was in that band, we played in Cocoa Beach a couple times with the Almond Joys. And that's how I met Greg and Dwayne. But again, that was only in passing because, uh, you know, we met setting up and doing all that and had time to talk a little bit. But when the gig was over, you know, they played, we played, we left, they left, you know, and uh, might not see them again for five months. You know, uh, but uh, Dwayne uh, stopped by the house in Jacksonville before he was go- he was headed back to Macon, Georgia, which I had never even heard of. We played for a little while, all of us, and uh, Dwayne said, uh, "You guys need to come up to Macon. There's this guy up there in this record company. He's starting and all that." He told us about Phil Walden and and all that, and, and Macon, Georgia. And uh, he went back up. And then the next thing we knew, uh, I don't know what he said to Phil, but Phil jumped on us. And uh, he sent Johnny Sandlin down to listen to us, who uh, was his right-hand man in the studio. Uh, He was pretty much him and Paul Hornsby were the two that were doing any recordings that went on down there and at the studio down the street from the offices he sent johnny down to hear us and um, johnny and i became uh, instant friends i mean we talked for a couple hours after our gig and he and i both agreed years later that um, after a couple hours we felt like we'd known each other all our lives and uh, we were real close and got closer but um that's how we got connected up there and um Phil Walden had never even heard us, and he sent us management contracts, recording contracts, and booking contracts. And uh, we signed every one of them and didn't even think about getting an attorney to check it all out. Because as far as we were concerned, he's like, that's what we wanted to do. And he was ready to buy us some equipment, put us on the road, and let us do what we wanted to do. So why argue with that? In 1970, the band would record their debut record, Reach for the Sky, produced by Johnny Sandlin at Capricorn Studios in Macon. The label would release the album later that year. I spent my first few years with L.A. She drove me over to the freeways on the eastern side. recorded that in 1970 when we first got up to Macon and uh, on eight track when we first went up there we had all the songs to our first album we may have had a couple that later turned up on Father Gets You Ten but mostly we had all the songs that you would hear on Reach for the Sky two of them being um, 
the two songs that Scott and I played for each other when we officially met, we had all that stuff worked up and uh, and well rehearsed before we went into the studio. And of course, you know, Johnny had some great ideas uh, how to you know change a couple things, lengthen this, put in an instrumental section there, or whatever. Um, but mostly, uh, they were unchanged from what we'd come up with in Jacksonville. At some point during the Reach for the Sky period, the band would relocate to the Macon area, and it is in this environment that they would begin to work on the batch of songs that would make up their next record. But when the time would come for the band to record their new material, Capricorn Studio in Macon would be unavailable due to renovations involving the installation of a quadraphonic board. With the studio out of commission, the band would record the majority of the record at the now legendary Muscle Shoals Sound Studio in Sheffield, Alabama. Founded in 1969 by the session musicians widely known as the Swampers, the studio would go on to host a number of significant sessions, including those by the Staple Singers, Paul Simon, and the Rolling Stones, among many others. We needed to get into the studio while we were fresh with this new stuff, and and it was time to have another one out. You know, it, it had been a year since the first one came out, so uh, or it was approaching a year anyway. And um, so we went over there. It was just a funky little building. Originally, it was a casket company. It's a very small building. I mean, uh, it's not physically impressive when you see it. You would you would go, man, all those hits came out of here. How'd that happen? But it just goes to show you don't need all that extra flash. What you need is somebody that knows what they're doing and can feel their instruments and play them well. But anyway, um, the building itself had a very low ceiling. I think that might have uh, helped with the unique sound that it had. The uh, control room was so small that... uh, it was hard to fit the whole band in there to listen to a playback. We were on the night shift, which was what most of us wanted. All of us, I, I guess, um, would rather work at night. But during the day, while we were doing Five Against You Ten, during the day, uh, Leon Russell was uh, in cutting uh, his album Tightrope. I remember once we were recording something and... and uh, had a technical failure and the guy who had wired the studio, Tommy. Uh, oh, what was Tommy's last name? Sorry. I can't remember right now, but um, excuse me, Tommy. Um, one of the tracks had gone out and uh, it was not recording. And even when put into record mode and uh, they called up Tommy, the guy who wired the place. And this is a, a good example of the uh, laid backness, just you know, the country uh, way and feeling that the whole, the low pressure vibe that was there, to say the least. Um, you know, they called him up. First thing he said was, "Did you reach back there and wiggle that wire coming out of track seven? <laughs> that was his fix. No, we haven't tried that. All right, we'll try that. See if it works. I forgot." whether it worked or not, but uh, 
that's the kind of stuff that went on there. <laughs> but in the end, they made a record. Come let us go and plant the field. Let others know just how we Five Will Get You Ten opens with a taunting composition, She Carries a Child, a laid-back number that explores spiritual and existential truths surrounding the act of procreation and childbirth, containing a thoughtful and earthy arrangement of acoustic guitars, exceptional vocal harmonies, and some stately piano fills performed by musician Chuck LaBelle. The track also includes the vital presence of pedal steel, provided on this track by both Boyer and Talton. On She Carries a Child with the pedal steel, uh, that's Scott playing pedal steel on the song, uh, but when the uh, solo came up, Scott just wasn't feeling a solo. You know, it just happens sometimes. It's nobody's fault. And so he was playing it and had a few goes at it. The steel was set up in a place where Johnny Sandlin in the control room couldn't see Scott and uh, I whispered to Scott, let me do a pass at it. So I got behind the pedal steel and Scott said, okay, Johnny, run it again, I'll try it. And uh, as far as Johnny knew, Scott was playing it, but it was me. <laughs> So the, the solo on that on pedal steel is me playing, but everything else on the song is Scott playing. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the story on the pedal steel part there. By the way, that pedal steel, interestingly, we got that from uh, Ronnie Van Zant. Ronnie and uh, I don't remember who else, uh, but they were younger than us and uh, they would come over to our rehearsals every once in a while and sit there and listen and Scott and Bill went over to uh, Ronnie's house. He had that pedal steel. That pedal steel came from a little music store outside of Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, Ronnie bought it there, I think, and uh, it's a three-pedal pedal steel. The mother's true conception depends on your I wrote, She Carries a Child. In the lyric, there's a verse about, there's an old, old shack out across the street and I'm gonna get it fixed up as sure as I walk on my feet. And that was um, because at the time we were living 32 miles south of Macon. We had rented a huge old 1852 farmer's house, two story, 
little deal out on 400 acres. Again, that rent was $75 a month. And whenever we were home for any length of time, which wasn't often, uh, on this 400 acres where we were living, I would go out. And I've always been into carpentry and uh, woodworking and stuff. I, I've always liked it. And uh, painting and uh, painting pictures and painting houses and whatever. But uh, I found this old shack. And it, it must have been from back 100 years ago, you know, now 150 years ago. But, uh, yeah, I started fixing it up. It was a dilapidated and it was fun. I, I didn't have any any extreme plans to make it a livable place, you know. I wasn't thinking of putting central heat and air in it or anything. It was just a little interesting way to uh, pass the time. And kind of like, uh, that was my meditation. Porch Romp, Hey There Baby, is a lively number containing lyrics that express an encouraging message of self-discovery and belief. All of these songs back then, we were all kind of like, uh, we had a lot of suggestions as to, you know, what we'd learned in life at that point, even though we we were still kids. We were 20, 21. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, songs with uh, suggestions on um, how to go through your daily life, you know. I don't know where that all came from. It was all natural. Certainly didn't think, you know, we knew the way as if there was one way, you know? You know, there's songs like uh, from the first album, Use Your Situation and Look Before You Leap, all that kind of stuff, you know? Uh, that's pretty much what this song is. It's, uh, you don't need anybody else to tell you what to do. You got it inside, that was the message. If you uh, believe in yourself, have faith in yourself and uh, know that you are, you're a superstar. Everybody but Tom Wynn sang. Pete, George Clark on bass, uh, Bill Fillmore on piano, uh, pedal steel, and acoustic guitar. And uh, that's where all that pretty harmony came from, you know?
on this particular one, I happen to be playing acoustic. So I'm doing all the acoustic fills. You could say I'm playing lead acoustic. Pete's playing lead electric. All that happens simply because neither one of us were singing the song. So we were free to um, think more about a guitar part than a vocal part, you know? So Pete almost always played electric when we were in the studio. Whereas Scott and I would switch back and forth between acoustics and electrics. The album's introspective title track contains lyrics inspired by a tumultuous trip from Macon to Atlanta that nicely complements the relaxed musical atmosphere, which eventually gives way to its more ominous refrain. This day it blew away like a day that was blowing by slow With all our thoughts excited, thinking we had somewhere to go the city's ways entangled the life of a country boy's soul. But still he heard the words that he heard a couple Sundays ago. Yeah, so I wrote this one, and uh, the first thing that's uh, worth mentioning is that it's tuned. I don't know how I came about this, but um, the D string, the, the fourth string, is tuned up one note to an E, so that when you make, uh, for all you guitar players out there, which, when you make a normal major E chord with this tuning, your um, your third finger, which would be on the second fret and the fourth string, would actually be, instead of hitting an E note, it would be, because it's tuned up a note, it would become an, an F sharp. And that's where that lick in the front comes from, the blum, 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 blum. That's the D string moving from an F sharp to an E back and forth while playing an E chord to an A chord. It also makes on the ending, it makes for some strange chords. Tuning that string up, you know, like makes it a sixth. You're putting a sixth in there when you're playing what would normally be a major chord. If you play what is normally a major chord, it becomes uh, an E six instead of an E major. That lyrically was uh, actually about, at one time, I really had a strong disliking for Atlanta. Uh, Can't tell you exactly any specific reason. It just didn't feel right. It was like the the big evil city to me or something. You know, it was like uh, just too big for, well, I think there's a line in there that says, uh, the city's ways entangled the life of a country boy's soul. 
that's where that came from you know it just didn't feel right there to me but that whole tune was about a uh, a trip that we took from Macon to Atlanta one day to do a gig and it was raining uh, very heavily which is all in the song <laughs> that's the uh, the thing about most of uh, my lyrics um, back then was that uh, there's no hidden meaning or anything it's like it's pretty much here's what's going on around me it's like a uh, just a, a report you know the rain came down all over and we were slipping side to side on the road but then a, a philosophical thought will come in like uh, some days you don't look up and today was like a day that it showed and in fact these days nobody looks up everybody's looking at their phone right was just a a cool guitar part that came to me you know i uh, i still to this day don't even i can't tell you what time signature that is it was pretty much uh, partly 5/4 and i can't think there's a bar of 5/4 and then there's a bar of uh, i think scott counted it out as 11/4 i don't know but it's essentially it's a there's a lot of, there's a couple times where you drop the the first beat of a of the next bar and uh push the two you know i was not concerned with with what it was called i just uh, liked the way it sounded five will get you 10 you can come back again is also a little uh play on you know the obvious and then also maybe some reincarnation involved Following Five Will Get You Ten is the track The Wonder, a poignant anti-war number written by a friend of the band, John McKenzie. 
he was just a friend of ours. Uh, uh, Scott and Bill had met him at University of Florida. He lived in Tallahassee. They knew him before I did, and uh, he wrote a lot of songs, and that one in particular caught our ear. I think that's the only song that Cowboy ever recorded that was not uh, written by one of us. Again, it's, it speaks for itself. It's a very strong song uh, and still true to this day. beautiful harmony there is George and Pete and Bill and I joining in with Scott. That type thing, uh, that all speaks to the uh, fine producing of Johnny Sandlin. The way the voices blend, the way that he chose to record them, and uh, much of it we were on one microphone, maybe, uh, maybe two sometimes don't recall exactly which which particular song we were on two or one mic but uh, Johnny was good at, at things like uh, say if I was recording a, a, a solo on something uh, I would always want to try it one more time because I, I kept hearing you know oh now I hear this and I want to try this and I want this down there and oh that if I did this and lead into that, cool, you know, whatever. But I would get hung up on that kind of stuff. And Johnny was real good at knowing when I had peaked and knowing when I had played the part that needed to be there. That's invaluable at times. He helped Dickie Betts a lot uh, like that with uh, slide parts, like on Ramblin' Man. I was there when, when Dickie was putting some uh, slide parts over Ramblin' Man after the song had already been uh, tracked and everything and uh some of the ideas that ended up being on the record were johnny saying you know dicky right there you were you were doing this lick and uh, you went away from it you, maybe you want to stay on that lick longer or uh, in fact even even make it stronger in that direction little things like that that's what a a good producer does is to, to not not tell you what to do, but suggest that you're on the right track or not. You know, it really helps to have someone with a good ear and a, a good uh, a good idea of song structure to help guide you. You know, because there's so many different ways to play a song. You know, uh, it really helps to have someone help you focus into the the one that seems the best direction to take.
The up-tempo 4-4 groove of shoestrings is yet another track on which the band displays their versatility as vocalists, and is one of a number of cowboy songs with which Boyer and multi-instrumentalist Bill Pilmore share songwriting credit. Yeah, they wrote a lot of tunes together. Um, they just seemed to have that going before Cowboy ever even got together. You know, they had written some stuff. In fact, this, a lot of the songs on the first and second album were written uh, with them together because they had written them before, you know, we had even put the band together. They were going to school together in Tallahassee. There's a uh, breakdown where I don't know if you can hear it. There was a break in the music before it went into another section and uh, the bathroom was in the playing area uh, at Muscle Shoals Sound. In fact, David Hood, on a lot of uh, uh, recordings, I think he played from the bathroom. You'd have to ask him about that, but I think that's true. But there's one part in shoestrings where we actually flushed the toilet and used that as a percussion instrument. a Telecaster on this one and I hardly ever played telly back then. Yeah, you can hear a little bird whistle in there too, but we also had the flush in the toilet. Featuring Dwayne Allman on vibrato guitar, adding a layer of dreaminess to the mostly acoustic affair, The Soulful Ballad Looking For You is a track that greatly exemplifies the band's adeptness for songcraft and arrangement. Has it been arranged or has it changed? Still it keeps me reeling. Pete and I just recently had a little discussion uh, through Facebook on that. Somebody mentioned that song and, and I had mentioned how uh, 
Pete had played some beautiful guitar on that, and then he said, that was you. <laughs> but that electric guitar that, you know, we've got this beautiful uh, lilting love song going, and then all of a sudden it's, there's a, a raucous, uh, but beautiful electric guitar thing that comes in. And also, by the way, that's Dwayne Allman on the uh, vibrato guitar. It was another aspect of Dwayne that uh, made him a wonderful player, is that it was what he added behind the scenes and uh, not the spotlighted sections, you know, necessarily of the song. But uh, he's playing that little simple blang every four beats, you know, blang. That's uh, just enough to make a, a, another aspect of a beautiful song. If that hadn't been there, it would have been uh, less than what it was. Nothing um, bothers me more than uh, a musician that uh, has to play constantly and uh, kind of uh, musically say, look, look at me. Look, I'm over here. The best musicians blend in and uh, play what the song suggests, not what the ego suggests. I just spent myself on your Dave Brubeck meets Honky Tonk Vibe. The Pillmore Pen track, 7-4 Tune, is a loose country rock gem on which drummer Tom Wynn truly shines. Yeah, Tom played a lot of beautiful drum parts. He was a very melodic player, you know. Uh, there are a few drummers that, uh, some of the really good ones who actually play melodic you know it's almost like you can hear notes rather than just a, a rhythm of something being percussed being hit but uh, is percussed a word i don't know uh but anyway uh, tom was very good at that it's a well thought out part that melodically helps the song 
swampy, blue-eyed soul of Right On Friends, complete with its box tops-like electric sitar, is another Boyer number, much like that of Hey There Baby, in which the lyrical matter expresses a message of encouragement and support. And I'd be remiss if I did not bring your attention to my favorite part of the song, which is the very minimalist approach to lead guitar on this part right here. Isn't that good? I mean, that's really all you need right there. A right on friend was, uh, I think Scott wrote specifically to a friend of ours, a girl going through some problems. And it was just like a way to, again, give a suggestion as to how to get through the bad times. That's the electric sitar I'm playing. Yeah, that's what that is. I don't remember where that came from. Um, it's not something that is real usable, you know? It's like, it's like you, you use it once and then it's like, okay, that's pretty much it. is a track steeped in nostalgia and sincerity, evoking this sense through both its lyrics and winning combination of finger-picked acoustics, ethereal organ, and some beautiful and emotive violin work provided by Boyer. He was in the uh, orchestra at FSU, yeah. He was uh, uh, classically trained, and uh, he asked me to play a... Uh, a solo on this and I couldn't come up with anything worthwhile I, I just wasn't hearing it and uh, 
And then actually, he even had、uh, Dwayne try on something on it, and Dwayne didn't come up with anything, believe it or not. So Scott said, "Well,、I'll, let me just see if I can put a violin part on it," and that's what we ended up using. Scott's、uh, his story behind、uh, where that song came from grew and grew through the years. <laughs> his introduction to that song got longer and longer as as time went by.、Uh, I loved him for it. He's he would embellish upon it, you know, as the years went by. But it, basically, it was about、uh, the big house that we lived in on four hundred acres.、Uh, you know. At, After we were out on the road so often, all around the southeast and the northeast,、uh, mostly, and、uh, it seemed that we would we would have stringalongs、um, and make friends on the road that eventually、uh, wound up coming back and、uh, spending some time with us at the house. So that's、uh, one of the things that we had to move out of the house for because、uh, the landlady. Heard about all kinds of things. A、uh, hippie cult was living there, and this and that. And,、uh, she said, "I can't do this anymore. You guys, there's too many people living here. You gotta move on." So basically, that's what all my friends started from.、Uh, he's talking about all the all the friends we made on the road who eventually ended up not living with us constantly, but hanging or hanging around a long time. <laughs> We near the end of the record, we get the pastoral folk of Innocent Song. Yeah, that's that's Scott and Bill singing together. They were in unison at first, and then they break into harmony, and it's another beautiful song. We had no lack of good ballads, that's for sure. But、uh, we could crank it up every once in a while when we wanted to. <laughs> Probably just doing some、uh, filler acoustic part, and you know, playing along with with the flow of things, not doing anything that that needs to be spotlighted. You know, Scott had a real nice.、Uh, in fact, he he had it till the day he died. J forty five, real good sounding guitar.、Um, I had.、Uh, I forget what I had at the time. I was always switching 
uh, back and forth. I really can't remember what I even used on that. And we had some that were sitting around the studio. There was a uh, Bill Pilmore had a, a really fine J J two hundred Gibson big body jumbo thing. I think there was a Martin that was uh, owned by the studio. That's probably what I was playing on uh, on this in particular. penultimate track, Please Be With Me, is a sparse arrangement of acoustic instruments weaving around the steady anchor of an upright bass. Featuring Dwayne Allman on Dobro, the track would be covered just a few years later by Allman's Derek and the Dominoes bandmate Eric Clapton on his 461 Ocean Boulevard album. It's the one that's, uh, you know, certainly, uh, as Scott put it many times, uh, it's treated him well through the years. Um, uh, his royalty checks on that went pretty well. But uh, we were recording uh, this album, and uh, that song didn't even exist when we went over there to, to do these songs. We all went to eat one day. We were staying in the hotel uh, there by the river in Muscle Shoals, and uh, Scott says we left him behind. I don't know. We didn't ask him if he wanted to go, but he was left alone at the hotel, and uh, actually it turned out pretty good for him. He just uh, kind of started writing and singing off the top of his head. You know, I sit here lying in my bed wondering what, you know. He said he had about 15 different verses uh, and finally just picked the ones, the three that we recorded. They were the three best. I think we all agreed on which ones would work best. But uh, of course, uh, Dwayne's Dobro part really put the final touches on that song. Uh, beautiful song.
album's closing track, the Peter Kowalki pen number, What I Want Is You, the party is winding down, and the band invites us out to the porch to spend these last intimate moments together, gazing up at the stars. It's a track imbued with warmth and wide-eyed wonder, and nicely concludes the record. Yeah, that's that's me on my on a three thirty five, and uh, lots of reverb. <laughs> yeah, I always loved playing that kind of free form, just lilt around like you're flying through the sky, and uh, it's pretty feeling. You know the brushes when you swirl brushes on a on a snare drum, you get that effect. Well, um, we weren't getting it good on the on the snare drum, so we ended up overdubbing a. Uh, I think it was Tom stood out by a microphone that was uh, really hot and uh, rubbed a piece of paper in circular motion on his cheek of his. Uh, unshaved face and so the the beginnings of the beard on the cheek really made the paper sound cool that's where the swirl motion comes in when that's mixed in at the proper place it, it really adds a lot without without you the listener even knowing that it was added you know? little things like that that make a difference for the album art the band would use an illustration from friend and artist B.T. Brandhorst. Barry Brandhorst, yeah. He's a, a friend of ours from Jacksonville, a great artist. Uh, and uh, that's all airbrushed uh, drawings and paintings that he would do. He had a lot of uh, really great pieces. And uh, that was a unforgettable cover, really. I, I think it's beautiful. Capricorn Records releases Five Will Get You Ten in the fall of 1971. Following the album's release, Cowboy would do some extensive touring, but by the end of the next year, the original lineup would begin to splinter. We went out on the road like we always did, just constantly uh, trying to let people know that we existed. And uh, uh, I don't know, slowly we all just kind of faded away out of it and got some of us had different life situations going on. And, kind of started going our separate ways at the time. So uh, I remember it being difficult to uh, make any headway with record sales. Uh, we were at odds sometimes with the record company for different reasons. It all got sluggish there, and we uh, we all decided to take a break for a while. 
some of the guys went back down to Florida and Scott and I stayed up in Georgia and started working in the studio on other projects, you know, and becoming the uh, studio band. Scott and I and Bill Stewart on drums and Johnny Sandlin on bass, Charlie Hayward on bass, Chuck on piano and organ and Paul Hornsby on organ and piano. So that's when everything started changing from being in a band to, you know, kind of like feeling a little more singular. There's there's no uh, there's no specific reason that I can think of. Uh, it's just the way life happened. Boyer and Talton would go on to release two more records for Capricorn under the cowboy name. 1974's Boyer and Talton and 1977's Cowboy. Around the same time of the self-titled album's release, Capricorn would begin to experience a number of financial issues, eventually filing for bankruptcy in November of 1979. Talton would move back to Florida for a few years, and Boyer would spend some time in Los Angeles before moving back south and eventually settling in Muscle Shoals in 1988. Boyer and Talton would continue to work together off and on in the ensuing years, and in 2007, the original lineup of Cowboy, along with producer Johnny Sandlin, would begin work on what would become the album, Ten'll Get You Twenty, though it would be over a decade before the album would receive a proper release. Sadly, Boyer would pass away in February of 2018. Later that same year, Ten'll Get You Twenty would finally be released, marking the final recording that Boyer, Talton, and Sandlin, who had passed away in 2017, would work on together. Talton, who continues to tour and release new music, carries on the legacy of Cowboy. And as for his feelings on the record that he and his bandmates made a little over 50 years ago, Talton remains proud of what they were able to accomplish together. Well, I'm very honored to have been a part of it. I think it's a really beautiful record, and I think that it stands up after years of past. And, uh, oh, another thing, too, was it was uh, it was famously always being played or played quite a bit in the Almond Brothers big house when the band was out on the road, uh, Cowboy and Almond Brothers whenever we were out of town and, and the women folk were back at the house, I heard that they, uh, well, I know that they played that a lot and uh, were pretty fond of it. It's, it holds a special place, that's for sure. Um, one reason being it was one of the last things Dwayne recorded too. Yeah, I'm very happy that it happened. And I'm, uh, you know, the, those are all good times I look back upon with a, uh, fond, fond, fond memories. And uh, I feel quite blessed to have been involved in all that. The friendships that we had with uh, me and Scott and Bill and Tom and George and Pete and, uh, you know, Johnny Sandlin. Uh, It was just a very good thing to have been through. And I'm very happy that that I was fortunate enough to, to be involved. That's about all I can say about it, really.
Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Tommy Talton for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Five Will Get You Ten and more from Cowboy and Talton on the various streaming platforms or at TommyTaltonMusic.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at InLovingRecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.